any wrong notes! <laughs> Way to go. Sorry. Just completely ruined the audio. I know. Smashed your harpsichord a little bit. That's right. It's not my harpsichord, it's a piece of crap. Anyway. Oh, well then, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Introduce yourself. Hello. Uh, I'm Xi'an. I'm a musician and um, artist, teacher. Also do some writing, freelance writing, uh, mostly about music, but a few things about other topics too. I am also a composer, so pianist, composer, and also do some dabbling in theater world as an actor as well and other sorts of, you know, extracurricular musical <laughs> performative things. I kind of have a lot of different interests right now, but um, I guess my connection to uh, Francis here, to you, is more just as musicians meeting years ago yeah. at Brevard Music Festival. That's right. How many years ago was that? Oh, it's 2008. Nine years ago, Jesus. right? Almost yeah. nine years. That's insane. And then, of course, I wrote uh, <laughs> a few things for you. That's actually, right. uh, you you first premiered the Jokatudes on piano. Yeah, on, back when I played on piano. Modern piano, right? Mm -hmm. But the first question I want to ask you, actually, is when I met you, you were not Xi'an. Yes, you are true. Andy. First of all, describe yourself racially. <laughs> <laughs> so that it makes sense right um so i'm a hapa i'm half irish and half chinese born and raised in chicago so and for what 29 years of your life you went by andy right andy costello yeah and then just, recently you just decided to change to xian and i just kind of want to know how you came to that yeah so basically xian was the name i was born with when i was when I was born, it was given to me and it was with like, you know, my birth certificate and everything. And it was given to me actually from my uh, grandparents. And that name was basically more or less lost. Um, it was something my parents didn't use um, at all growing up. And so, you know, I kind of rediscovered it and re-embraced um, re it. Or I should say embraced it for the first time from my perspective. And... Um, yeah, it's been it's been interesting to sort of racialize yourself. Um, to racialize yourself, first of all, is always an interesting <laughs> thing to do, and I think it's a way of responding to being racialized too. And and in terms of um, being uh, biracial, being basically just two things in in that way, um, seeing yourself racialized by everyone, whether they're um, white or not white, has been um, sort of I guess a discovery and a um, realization that's sort of built up over the years and, uh, and now I'm starting to really understand it and and then now that I understand it um, taking the matter into my own hands for the first time in my life you know rather than be like oh you just called me that okay you know or you just called me that oh you think that I look like that okay I'm done taking in information <laughs> if that makes sense I'm done at figuring it out so to speak uh -huh. Um, and my response is to go with my Chinese name. Have you noticed a difference in response to you as an Asian musician versus a white musician? Does that question That's make fantastic. sense? That's fantastic. It might be in my head more than anything else. <laughs> but my hunch is that I will 
be embraced more for technical virtuosity, technical ability, and I will be debased in terms of my creativity and independent mindedness. I think I think that's how it might play out. Just my hunch. Why is that? Why why do you have that hunch? Well, why do you think I do? Well, I think I know why, but I want you to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like you really don't know at all what I'm trying to get to here. Um, you know, Asians in music, uh, there's a special role that I think like East Asians especially hold mm-hmm. in classical music in the, in the Western world. And um, there's been a lot of, I guess, uh, success there. And uh, that's something to be really happy of and proud of, I think. However, uh, I have rarely seen um, an Asian musician be praised in the Western world for their creative independent mindedness or creative thinking or um yeah like if if there's a creative flair it would be more attributed to their otherness Uh and to the fact that it's like oh that's just part of their culture there it's fascinating (laughs) let's research that rather than like oh that's an individual Uh who um came up with a freaking awesome idea that changes the way i think about this thing it's more like attributed to the whole culture, like, oh, those Japanese have such cool ways of thinking. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly. That's sort of mean. like what would be said of a creative Japanese person <laughs> in the Western world versus just a creative white person or something yeah. in, in the Western world. It'd be like, well, that person was really creative. No one says, oh, the Irish, they're so, you know, yeah, creative. I guess some people do. Some I think they are. Do. But, yeah. you know, but that's not the first... Like, well, it's because the whole technical virtuosity thing is sort of a way of otherizing hmm. musicians, I think. Abs- it's dehumanizing. It's, it's dehumanizing. A way, yeah, it's like absolutely. We've become these kind of automatons who are technically, whatever that means, perfect. And that, in a way, diminishes us. Absolutely. Because there are lots of stereotypes. Like, I even, in a master class, the person giving the master class... Yeah. To uh, in this case, I'm thinking of a South Korean girl. It's like she basically told everyone, "Oh, but you Asians don't have passion." I mean, she didn't say it that way, I believe but it. that was the <laughs> message that came across. Yeah, and I'm like, "What? What does that mean? Right? How does that make sense?" Right. And you said something very similar to me in private conversations. Yes. So yeah. Worse, dehumanizing. dehumanizing. It really yeah, is dehumanizing. We're just, we're just machines. Yeah, if you if you have the hunch that a certain human being is less capable of emotion, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty, uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty uh, dehumanizing. Um, but this, yeah. this hasn't happened to you yet. Cause, I mean, the name change is pretty recent, but have you noticed a change in that respect? I mean, I don't know. I'm still the same. person though that's the thing like i don't even know if that will affect things because i'm still physically this like mix right i'm still physically going to be most of the time pinned as asian to a white person and to a person of color pinned as probably white so that's generally the trend i see just from physical you know appearance appearance i mean there's a physical appearance to written word too though so that's true and that's what i was going to bring up yeah if I saw your name in a program as Andy Costello versus mm-hmm. 
you go by Ko Xi'an now? Is that your um, first? Or? I'm kind of mixing sometimes Xi'an and Xi'an Ko, sometimes Ko Xi'an. Okay. Um, if it's in a program, though, it's always been Xi'an and then Shi'an, the two characters after uh-huh. that, like to, just in parentheses. Oh, okay. So. Let's say if someone was not even looking at you. And again, this is such, so new, it will be fascinating to talk to you, like maybe a year down the road. Yeah. Really. But I'm wondering how people will perceive you will change. Yeah. And I think that's something that I'm sort of looking forward to talking to you about. And talking to you about, because, you know, as a friend from so long ago, yeah. I want to see how that works for you all, too, for my friend base and my you know what, family what do you mean, that exactly mean like, like if you go oh well now this part of you is coming out more or something oh that, i see do you yeah. know what i mean yeah that would be interesting to see yeah i'm very interested in how strangers will perceive your playing now yeah. versus how they did before and also yeah just how people will treat you yeah if the way people will treat you will change and i bring this up in the beginning because i've known andy for almost 10 years now Oh, see? And this is exactly what happens. Sometimes yeah. I slip. Yeah. And I don't mean to. <laughs> and I'm just apologizing way in advance if I call Xi'an Andy. <laughs> and it's something, again, this is new to me. And I totally respect Xi'an's, you know, desire to be called Xi'an. Yeah. It's like almost 10 years of habit. So that's really why I'm bringing this up. And please forgive me if I slip. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I will. Oh, Okay. Well, the interview's over. Go. <laughs> I like to ask these stupid questions to everybody. So okay. we start with stupid questions. Yes. All right? Here we go. What dead composer do you think you could beat in a fight? Beat in a fight? Yeah. We're a very violent podcast. I know, We're right? <laughs> all the time. I'm actually trying to, I'm trying to first figure out if I would want to actually beat someone up. That was actually my moment. answer, too. Was it really? Yeah, when Jeanette asked me that question. Yeah, like I can't... I'm pretty pacifist, so I'm trying to think of a situation <laughs> where I would like be so moved. I mean, I guess if like they attacked me, yeah. then yeah, totally. I'd have to fight back and I would, you know, yeah. fight out of defense. So if it was in that setting, <laughs> I was like, versus like, hey, Bach! You know what? <laughs> just like busting him in at his, at his little ch- church job. Yeah, hey! <laughs> like two in the morning, drunk, yeah. Uh, so I, that wouldn't happen. Um, maybe, okay, so first of all, I guess, it's such a stupid question, but I'm going really deep into it. Well, that's what we want. So you can always edit it out. No. I'm keeping everything <laughs> within. <laughs> all right, so the real question for me then is who would attack me? Yes. Which composer would attack me which would force a fight out of the two uh-huh. of us. I guess, like, if Wagner had some kind of, like, supremacist thing going, you know. <laughs> that was exactly that? my answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. I could see getting into a real good, like, hardcore verbal fight where we're, like, kind of plussing each other yeah. with Prokofiev. Oh. Probably because we're similar, too. Yeah. Like, we both have a lot of, like, sarcastic... Uh-huh humor and we like to kind of be enfant terrible kind of thing a little bit like we both i think if we were like stuck in a cabin with like eight other people we would like rub against each other i could see um, that yeah i mean i guess beethoven could i guess and 
Bach did draw his knife out of bassoonist. Did he really? Yeah. God. Got into a fight. Handel also got into a fight, actually. <laughs> Composer Knife Fight Club. Yeah. I mean, that's something interesting, too, actually, that brings up a really good point is to talk about is, like, how we actually are guilty of dehumanizing composers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to, to actually have a hard time in imagining a composer, um, you know, doing something. It's like that blog composers doing normal shit yeah, or something yeah. or real shit. Exactly. Um, it's that kind of idea where we, we deify them which also is a form of dehumanization. Absolutely right. And ultimately, in that sense, is disrespectful um, to not acknowledge the full uh, spectrum of that person. And in a a way, for me, it becomes more amazing that they wrote what they wrote when I see them as human beings rather than as gods. And I've been accused of insulting Bach because sometimes I call him a brat. Which he was. <laughs> Read his letters. He was kind of a brat sometimes. Really? Yeah. And, yeah. And people react very negatively to that. They think I'm denigrating Bach. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like knowing that he was a brat yeah. makes him the better composer to, in my mind. Or the fact that a lot of people think Bach sprung from nothing. When Bach himself was so proud of his compositional lineage. Right, right. And to give Bach sole credit for what he did. Yeah. When Bach kind of, himself didn't do right. that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's that the um the great man narrative yeah. that has really overlooked um frankly the important stuff. Like these were people and all they gave us was their music and were moved by just that. And to understand the fuller picture is pretty cool too. Yeah. At the same time, um, we'll never actually get to know them. That's true. And so there's something, you know, speaking of Bach, for example, just there's something so beautiful and fulfilling about having so much room for interpretation. Having, uh, in terms of like the notation, just having uh-huh. such mysteries Yeah. in um, how it was to sound and what, you know, what you should do with it. Having that kind of openness is cool. But ultimately, it's a, it's a human mystery and not a divine mystery. And I think that's my biggest issue of deifying someone like Bach. Is that he becomes this almost mythic godlike figure that you can't understand. I feel Well, like... I'm going to play devil's advocate. Okay. Because, you know, whatever the culture, whatever the religion, God is very close to, you know, the person who's believing in particular god and that relationship is really deep and personal i think certain ways that um religion is interpreted might try to create more mystery than clarity but i don't know i don't think all religions necessarily do that with with their with their deity or deities like religion sort of fulfills something in you so in a way it kind of answers unanswered or unanswerable Uh questions it gives you something that you can't get anywhere else. So, um, don't you think the fact that we take someone human like Bach and put him on this pedestal mm-hmm. creates this? Yeah, but huge listen, Franny, gulf of distance. But there is a freaking gulf of distance. I find okay. Let's put it this way, because since we're talking about yeah. Bach, <clears throat> and I guess that's like the best. Yeah, that's a great focal point here. 
I I think of Bach. I totally otherize Bach. I really do. I do think of him as kind of an alien in terms of how brilliant he was. I like just um, trying to understand how a person did all of that and but did it so well. And oh, you just sort of make my point though. You said a person did all that, and I feel like the way we're taught to think about Bach is that we don't think of him as a person. This idea that Bach had mysterious knowledge that he wasn't going to pass on to anybody else, I find to be a falsehood because he was a committed teacher. And I think he also said that, yes, I have some talent, I'm paraphrasing, but I also did it through hard work and study. Mm -hmm. And the very fact that he emphasizes this kind of very human qualities of hard work and study makes him more human and therefore makes his accomplishments all the more amazing. Right. I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I haven't thought about that. Like, <laughs> or I mean, I think just... a lot about like living people yeah. and living issues, but it's also true that we sometimes, yeah, need to maybe rethink how we, how we talk about the long yeah. gone. Um, because in a way, Bach's music survives because it still speaks to us. Yeah. And it speaks to us as human beings. It, it's one human being speaking to another human being, despite mm. the you know centuries of time difference. Right. And if we deify Bach, I think it becomes this thing that doesn't speak to us. It's this mysterious thing that we can't understand. Yeah, and sort of unquestionable greatness, which is not like all of Bach's compositions are not equally great. Yeah, you know. And that's important to realize, or important to have um, a critical eye to. Yeah, and this is my big problem with the canon, the Western canon. Mm -hmm. Well, one big problem is they're all dead white men. But the other problem Mm -hmm. is that we view these men as... Well, I don't know if that's a problem. Why? I don't know. I mean, every culture has their own... You know, everyone has their own um, music making and, you know, white Europeans happen to just, you know, go crazy with the notation part of it. That's true. I think this is a completely different subject, but I think my ultimate problem with the canon, with the Western canon, is that it otherizes and denigrates other music. Absolutely. Winner takes all. Right. I think that's Mm -hmm. my biggest problem with the canon. But my other kind of problem with the canon is these dead white men that people of the future deemed great, worthy of preserving. That it's sort of arbitrary. I mean, look, I feel like every piece that's on the canon is a great piece, and I understand why it's been canonized. But I also understand that canonization is kind of an artificial thing. Right. So as someone who plays early music, I get a lot of, oh, why do you play books to who did? Like, it denigrates other composers. Right. Oh, you must not be good enough to play, insert, canon. Yeah, exactly. Oh, why would you play LaRue when you can play Bach? Yeah. And it sort of also denigrates performers, because there's a lot of bad pieces out there, both old and new, Mm -hmm. that are saved by performances. Mm -hmm. And I feel like... In a way, playing something that's not in the canon can open up your creativity more. 
therefore helping you play pieces that are in the canon. Or even understanding the historical context. So if I play Bach, I'm understanding where Bach is coming from, what things he's stealing from, because he also, like every artist steals, right? right? And then suddenly Bach becomes alive instead of this kind of black dots on a page that... I also have to say, though, that to fight for the abstraction of music, yeah. fight for the power of, of music as an abstract art form, I like the black dots on the white page, too. I really... I I love the solace in that. Um, I love the mystery in that. I love that there's a really magical quality of, of for classical music of having notated music be the primary form of dissemination and reproduction it gives you a chance to actually for a moment deny that there is an other that there's another human who wrote that piece you get to actually which i find to be a blessing in in a in a therapeutic way for example um i find joy that i can play a piece by bach for example um at any tempo or articulation or style I want and and explore it and have fun with how it sounds without getting a text from, you know, yeah. the composer saying like, hey, you really effed up the premiere of this piece. And that kind of stress of like, oh man, I, I'm out of, you know, I might have just lost a professional contact. I might have lost a friend. Mm -hmm. Like, the, the duty and honor of having the human being that you can't deny the humanity of a living composer for better or worse. I think there's a beauty in that, but then there's also, there's a beauty in having a living composer. Obviously, I'm a composer, so obviously um, that's not what I'm saying. But, but, I, but I think that there's an equal amount of beauty in that solace of uh -huh. actually forgetting. You know, I like books for this reason, yeah. like reading novels, because I don't have to stare at the person's face who wrote the book and listen to their voice and their mannerisms. I love that they erase themselves in a way. As author, they erase themselves to give you something that um, is apart from a single person. There's something more yeah. universal in that way. It's I less personal, but possibly more universal. And they get there by abstraction, I feel. I think we're sort of in the same place with different routes to get there because what you're saying is I think very human is that you're letting the notes themselves speak to you and you're just kind of exploring the piece as if it's yours yes right yeah and I feel in early music like Bach that's how they felt about it like this piece is yours like my job is done once I'm composing Okay, I put the black notes on the page. Yeah. This is why they I tend not this. to write a lot. Mm. Because they expect the performer to add their flair. Themselves to themselves. It, yes. And I feel like we are just getting there in different ways. That historically speaking, a performer could do anything with the piece. It only became more, what is it, prescriptive or proscriptive? Prescriptive. Mm -hmm. Later, in later music. But in earlier music, it was not. Hmm. And again, that's a very human thing of a composer trusting another person yeah. with this piece to do it this way. Right. I mean, of course there were conventions, and I feel like 
Baroque music becomes alive once you know the dance conventions or the free improvisatory style. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes more sense just putting it in context that way. Yeah. But it's ultimately a composer wrote this piece. He gives it to you, and he expects you to add your flair to it. Yeah, but see, I, I understand that. But I do think there's something even a little slightly different about having it be just the notes without the composer present at all. Because it's not just about adding flair, it's about completely recreating this piece of music. Yeah. You know, like... I, I mean, I totally get what you're saying. Right, like here's an example. Okay, so-and-so reads the figured bass wrong uh-huh. in front of whatever, Vivaldi. Yeah. He's going to tell that girl, like in his, um, you know, his convent, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to tell her, yo, it's wrong. Like, yeah. I wrote that. Maybe it was blotchy. It looked like a six, but mm-hmm. it's a five, like, you know, or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> You're assuming he would write figures, but okay. <laughs> did he not write figures? Sometimes they don't write figures. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's just say. But he, I mean, he again, did for I'm a certain... just being an asshole. I know. Just... But like, okay, so he did. Yeah, you're more historically informed than this than I am, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, you have something like that happen. And let's say, you know, in modern day, such and such Baroque group yeah. plays that same piece. Um, and they actually just had a happy mistake where they played a six instead uh-huh. of a five. And it actually sounded really good. And they w- decided to stick with it as a band, as a group. Like going, hey, it's kind of fresh. It's cool. Let's play with that. It, we can, you know. I don't have any problem with that. I think that's really awesome. I think you agree too, maybe. that that's. I do agree. And I, so that's different though. You can, no, because, you because can do I don't them. think Vivaldi, if there was a happy accident like that, yeah. I don't think Vivaldi would have said anything. Ah. Wow. That's fascinating. I really don't. Especially because... I assumed he would. No, especially assumed... because the Italians tend not to figure, or if they figure, they figure very sparsely. Hmm. And who knows? And I also feel like... Or maybe he hears it wrong and says, hey, like, that was wrong, but it's really cool. Just change it. I mean, that could certainly have happened. Yeah. But I feel like it was... It's that mentality that, that changed, I think, sometime in the 19th century, where suddenly performers' input was not as valued as before. Mm. So if we're talking really early music, it's almost 50-50. Mm-hmm. They write so little and expect you to fill in a lot. Right. And so, but, I mean, let's just even take it away from early music. Let's say we're looking at a Chopin nocturne, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, Chopin wrote the nocturne, and it's Chopin's, but when I play it, it's mine. But are you, you're still playing Chopin, though. I mean, are they your notes? I mean, they're not my notes, but... It, I mean, they could be, it, you, you it, know. I mean, you said it I'm yourself, just, it just, becomes, yeah. like, yours. That's what you said. Like, it becomes something... Yeah. outside of what Chopin did. For me, yes, for exactly. And for me, that's how I feel. I'm I, asking, yeah, if you And feel I totally that feel that way, too. The, yeah. the piece kind of becomes mine mm-hmm. the time that I'm performing it, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like my obligations to Chopin are to first kind of understand what he was trying to say, just like an, a good actor would understand what the speech means before speaking the speech mm-hmm. but then son but then there are decisions about inflection and you know pacing that's totally up to the actor that's based on the meaning of the speech and right. i feel like it's the same with music 
that it's my job to really come to an understanding of what I thought, of what I think the composer is trying to say, and to say it. Mm-hmm. But in in order to say it, I need to figure out the best method of, for me, of saying that. So. The words coming out of the actor's mouth may not be his words, but they become his words in that moment when he's saying them. Because he's understood the meaning of it, and he's saying it, and he's conveying meaning to the audience. Right. And I think music is the same way that it becomes mine, in a sense, when I'm performing it. I agree with that in terms of it, yeah, embodying it, feeling the way. Yeah. The perspective that's interesting, though, for me, and I'm I'm totally someone who does this um i wonder if you're like this too but when you're when you're hearing a piece when you're just experiencing it as a audience member Mm -hmm. i find myself able to or at least i believe i'm able to make a decision on whether i'm enjoying the piece or not yeah and it's either the reason i'm enjoying it or not enjoying it is either it's either going to be because of the composition Mm -hmm. Or it's going to be because of the performance of that composition, or it's going to be a combination of the two mm-hmm. to make it enjoyable or not. And, you know, so sometimes I will be able to, for me at that moment and the way I'm hearing it, just say, it's a great piece of music. I can tell, like, it was well composed. Yeah. I just think the performer needs to practice more. <laughs> or, um, wow, that performer is awesome, but they played kind of like a piece that I just think is kind of not a great composition. But that's happened, you know? Yeah, and I understand that, but isn't it to the performer's credit that he or she took a piece that you might not enjoy just as notes on the page, but made it compelling to enjoy the performance? Absolutely. And I feel like that's the thing with the canon, is that we can admire these great pieces. They are great pieces. I'm not denying any piece in the canon as being great. But I also feel like there's a lot that performers add Mm -hmm. and they can take a really janky stupid piece (laughs) i'm thinking of the union by gottschalk which ah yeah 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 i think is a horrible piece (laughs) right (laughs) yeah if i hear a very compelling performance of the piece it doesn't matter to me gottschalk is a great example of music that is like either gonna be so dumb to listen to but totally com- if it's performed well, it's not dumb to listen to. Right. And that's the performer. And I'm I'm saying, yes, there is a time to kind of evaluate the piece as the piece. Like, is it very well composed? Right. And that's great. But that, I feel like that can happen outside of the concert hall. I think in the concert hall... Interesting. I think that's a completely different thing. Yeah. It's all about speaking and reaching an audience. And if you play something by Gottschalk, which may not be compositionally great or strong, yeah, but can still move an audience by how you perform it, isn't yeah. that a spectacular experience by Absolutely. itself? Absolutely. But I think maybe the core of what's hard there is they are so entrenched in their own camps, composition and performance, yeah. right? So just the mere fact that we can so easily discern between the performance of something like the performance contribution and the composer's contributions is already making it difficult for us to make healthy collaboration. Unless we start really getting off of like what exactly the composer wrote, we could never escape that in classical music. 
in, in terms of classical music canon that we know already. Yeah. So in terms of that Chopin Nocturne that we all know uh-huh. is um, immediately going to be evaluating the performance, right? Because we know the piece and we have like a schema for all mm-hmm. the other performances we've heard. I guess you could have a realization of like, oh, that's actually not a great piece or, oh, I really like that piece a lot more now. Anyway, I bring this kind of ramble up because I think something really good that's happening in contemporary music now is these like devised performances where the performer is the composer, Mm -hmm. is the performer, is the composer. (laughs) Like (laughs) there is lines are so blurred. Everyone is sort of collaborating on it on stage together. and And frankly, that's actually why I feel a kinship to new music, because early music was exactly the same way, Mm -hmm. because the composer was more likely than not the performer. Mm-hmm. Or one of the performers. Right. And so the line is very blurry of what they add or what they don't add or yeah. things like that. And it's the same as with contemporary music now, I think, where those lines are blurred. And so performers, even if they're not the composer, feel feel like they have permission to kind of add things in a way. I don't know if you feel like that's true or not. As a or as collaborate. A yeah, as a performer. Hmm. No, actually, I don't. As a performer, no. As a composer, yes. As a composer, I am very open to feedback yeah. from the performer I'm working with. And I'm very, very ready to make changes at the moment based on what feedback uh-huh. is and what comes out, you know. And Anyway, in other words, I'm pretty quick to admit if something is was miscalculated uh-huh. on my part. As a performer, and this is interesting, this might be a little bit about, you know yellowness here because yeah. you, you were talking a little earlier about this too about um having that sort of cultural thing um where you need permission first or something yeah. i think there's a bit of that too like for chinese culture earlier Xi'an and i were talking about uh korean culture as i experienced it where i feel like i have to be granted permission to do things and i felt that that's been hindering me in rehearsal culture or just professionally going for things that I think I was qualified for, but just mm-hmm. didn't because I just felt like I didn't have permission to do that. And so Xi'an, you're, now you're bringing that up as a Chinese-American. Um, yeah. Permission as a performer in terms of playing a living composer's work. Yeah. You know what? It might not be a cultural thing, too. For me, I don't know what the heck anything's coming from culturally, you know, yeah. in terms of the mixed stuff. So it might just be a personality thing, uh-huh. and we might be just kind of similar in this way. Um, I almost never, no matter how much I hate a piece of music that I'm performing, I will almost never offer my critical opinion unless yeah. it's asked of me point blank, straight up, what do you think of my piece? Yeah. Then I'm I'm not shy to tell you like I think this part's weak and I think you know but yeah. you have to come to me you need to be ready to hear it if you want to hear it that's right um, man I I honestly don't think I've ever asserted myself in terms of my compositional judgment on a composer of a piece I'm playing but really I'm not talking about compositional judgment there here though unless but, it's positive yeah. <laughs> like if it's yeah, positive I, mean, I might say like yeah I like your piece you a lot. as a performer has as have performer. to sell it. Have to, ha, have right. to communicate, it. right? It and therefore, you're bad. adding your own kind right. of. Well, you have to stay positive. That's the other well, element. Is like, well, you still, you know, if you think about how crappy the piece is that you're about to play and you're about to go on stage, you are going to exactly. play a crappy piece. So, in a in a sense, because you know it's your job to sell the piece, 
mm-hmm. right, to the audience, you're in essence kind of adding your own flair. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of blurred line between performer and composer in contemporary music. Mm. If you premiere a sonata by so-and-so, you privately may think it's a weak piece, but it's not your job on stage to project that. So because you have to sell the piece and communicate it to the audience, I feel like the performer with this new piece is adding some of himself to it in order to communicate that. Mm Mm-hmm. The notes may exist on the page, but no one knows what the notes are until yeah. they hear it. And the way you project it is going to vastly influence how people hear it. Yes, it's true, but the credit will usually go to the composer for the piece. We are in a... We still have that great man narrative thing going, yeah. right? Um, so that when we have this living collaboration between composer-performer, the composer, I, I feel like, still gets most of the credit. The performer will get the money, <laughs> you know, to be totally honest, that's how it, like in new music, the performer will get mm-hmm. a living and money for the gig. Yeah. Composer will front everything or not get as much or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's harder for there to yeah. be money on a new commission than for performance of yeah. a concert in a series, a concert series or something. Um, however, the composer will get, certain amount of like credit given to them more so than I feel like I do from the same concert you know mm-hmm. like I wouldn't I wouldn't feel like oh my god I'm gonna break out now because I pre- premiered all these I don't know um there's a few pieces like this in my life though that I felt extremely connected to mm-hmm. one was um Keith Custer's piece Trivia Surreal that piece I felt deeply connected to and it's had other performances by other pianist but because it was so personal and because it was written for me originally i do feel like i had a part in that piece Uh in a in a meaningful way whereas honestly because and i totally get it it's the hustle of composers trying to make a living and composers they often are just scrambling around to get as many performances and as many pieces written as possible before they're 40 and no longer considered emerging Uh right that hustle um, doesn't really allow them to reflect on who's playing their piece and how that affects it. You know, it's more of just like, okay, great, I got the piece and I can put this guy's name on my, you know, uh-huh. list of, of performances and I can hopefully get a job. Yeah. <laughs> and I get it. It's a hustle. You know, it's hard. I mean, actually, I don't get it. I get it, but don't get it because I don't make my living primarily yeah. as composition. So I, I feel for that struggle. So, however, I have seen this happen a few times where, like, you know, I do a lot to perform it and try to do it as well as possible. And they'll grab the recording and run and just be gone. And I won't hear from them for, like, years or, you know, never again, yeah. you know. And that's fine. Like, maybe some of those performances I played really crappy and they uh-huh. just didn't want to talk to me again because they didn't like the performance. Yeah. That's totally possible it's really riddled with paradoxes it really is i know i like like there's no yeah i (laughs) i get what you're saying though that the composer regardless of the strength of the piece will get the credit if the performance is good Mm -hmm. but i feel like credit aside there are times when performers help that credit Mm -hmm. and i think that's okay and it's even okay that it doesn't get acknowledged I think it's just one of those private victories. Here's an interesting idea. I just thought of it just now. Yeah. What if composers started not putting their names on a piece? I think. Just like, this is called this, and this is the performer tonight, that's it. 
I think that could be very interesting because in a way it completely takes away expectations. And similarly, the performer yeah. does the same thing. You play, put a program, just don't put your name on it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it'd be pretty hard to, to sell the concert. Sell tickets, like, right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, maybe not. What yeah. if, you know, like I'm, I'm totally thinking like a small town, town hall concert, like yeah. piano recital, like all caps and exclamation points. You know, that's it. That's the whole announcement exactly. and like 400 people show <laughs> up, you know. I mean, idealistically, um, I think that would be kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if if it's a money making venture, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, <laughs> right? Because people that would come, be people come to a piano recital because you've programmed Wallstein, right? You can and Wallstein played by I can't even think of the pianist right now, Jonathan Biss, sure, mm-hmm. right? And Jonathan Biss can program a lot of contemporary music. I don't think he plays contemporary. He does. He, he plays does. some. Yeah, does yeah. But people come. I'm doing a concerto project right now. It's uh, pretty cool. Cool. But people yeah. come because John's Biz is playing Volstein. Yeah. And they and he puts it at the end so that he can play whatever he wants. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just unfortunately how the market works. Well, maybe that's the core issue is yeah. um, if there's really literally no other... Maybe this is like an open call for opinions back from performers and yeah. composers, right? If there's literally no other, like I, as a performer and composer, I have no problem with that, a situation like that, Uh um, being erased from the program name wise. Yeah. Um, yeah. As long as I'm not starving, you know, basically. So maybe the core issue is really, if there is no other reason other than economic needs, then maybe we should look into what's wrong with the economy or the ideals that run the economy. Um, and how that rubs off onto art. I, I think that would be a fascinating experiment. I don't know how to do it or how it could be done, but I feel like that's something to think about, to just kind of judge it, to judge something without any preconceived notions about it. Especially if it's all new music. Yeah. And there's more than just the name, like, oh, where were they born? What year was this yeah. person born? Take away age, yeah. Right, yeah. Yep, take away ageism, take away cultural biases, take at least away. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and in a way, sexism. Well, yep, take away sexism. Definitely sexism, Absolutely, actually. yep. Yeah, racism. Oh, man, this is an open challenge to any new music ensemble <laughs> or <laughs> composer out there to self-efface their name. Yeah. And then you'll just be known as the one who doesn't, you know. <laughs> exactly. But I feel like the point of how we got here is mm. that there was a lack of respect for performers some, sometime in the 19th century. And I feel like there's a growing respect for performers mm. now. Realizing that performers add a lot. A great performer can sell a not-so-great composition. Mm-hmm. And in a way, keeping them separate like that is, might be a good idea. Mm. Keeping them separate. So yeah, the, no, in that, Judging in that, the composition as a composition mm. and then judging a performance as the performance. Right. I do think there's a benefit on that in this also for just um, having everyone with an actual assumed roles is very vital for, you know, yeah. like groups to work together, I guess, right? I mean, like a, the drawback in maybe theater for self-directing the drawback of directing yourself so essentially being director and actor mm-hmm. in the thing is that you can't see yourself you can't yeah. step back and and direct because you're also in the middle of it uh-huh. so the same way like 
if those lines get blurred, it can be hard for the composer performer to do one or the other. Yeah. At least the way we understand it. The way we understand it. I also, I feel like music kind of denigrates the, someone from the outside. Like I feel like writers have editors, theater people have directors, whose job is to be on the outside and say, what are you trying to communicate? I totally agree with you. Yeah. And say, oh, this is is coming across this way. If you want to communicate this here, maybe try this. And music doesn't have that. And I feel like music should have something like that. Right. That we do have that when we're in school with our teachers, per se, Mm -hmm. if we have a good teacher. Yeah. But we don't have that once we're out. True. But we have to rely on colleagues to to, to just kind of be on the outside. And I think that would solve the problem. Because, yes... It's hard when you're in it to know if what you want to say is coming across. And so that's why you have to rely on someone else. But it has to be someone you trust and know and who also has done those things. Yeah. And of course, in a way, like, if I'm working with a composer, I almost view that the composer to be in that role. You're right. You're right. That the composer is telling me, they're in it too, though, because they also have that swirl of emotions That's of true. like, oh my gosh, what I created is a disaster. It sounds bad. Uh-huh. Or, oh my gosh, I made such beautiful music. And either reaction would not be <laughs> helpful. <laughs> That's true. You're right. But then working with the composer and getting that kind of feedback is still telling me how something is coming across. Mm-hmm. And so even though I'm in the middle of it, I can have someone on the outside telling me this and this is not working. And either they decide to change something, or I go, okay, and I try something else. That ends the first part of our interview with Xi'an. Thank you so much for listening. My thanks to Xi'an for sitting down and talking to me. You're going to hear a lot more about him next time, but in the meantime, go check out his album, Rounded Binary, which you can find on YouTube. And don't forget to check us out on somanywrongnotes.com as well as follow our Facebook page and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening.